This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. As you can see, we're getting an early start on spring, which begins tomorrow. We'll begin this morning paying homage to a legend. Chuck Berry, truly one of the greats of rock and roll, passed away yesterday at home near St. Louis. He was 90. Our Anthony Mason will look back on a man who inspired a generation of musicians. Tomorrow is also the UN's International Day of Happiness, the day a panel of experts releases its ranking of the world's happiest countries. For the record, the nation that currently holds top honors for happiness is, well, we'll leave that to Faith Saley, who reports our cover story. If you had to name the world's happiest place, what would you say? Well, if you guessed America, you're wrong. So what is the happiest country? And what do they have that we don't? Hugo. 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 Hugo's great. We learn that answer and some new vocabulary later on Sunday morning. The name Betsy Johnson has always promised fashions that are anything but ordinary. Not surprising, considering that the real-life Betsy Johnson is a bit out of the ordinary, too. 
with Serena Alshul. This morning, we'll pay her a visit. Since the 1960s, this maniacally free-spirited New York designer's clothes have been the uniform for folks that don't want to look like everyone else. Everything that I do is basically a little costume, a little dress up and pretend. Later on Sunday morning, Betsy Johnson counts her lucky stars. The afterglow of a bygone era is dazzling visitors at an attraction in the Nevada desert. Lee Cowan will be our guide. It's not the city of lights. That distinction goes to Paris. But Las Vegas certainly has a glow of its own that makes history in its own way. We are the only city in the world who implodes its buildings and saves its signs. <laughs> it's a funny little town. <laughs> Preserving Las Vegas's legacy and lights later on Sunday morning. <laughs> Mario Andretti is a legend in the world of auto racing and still as comfortable behind the wheel as ever. Morocco hitched a ride with him for our Sunday profile. If you know nothing else about race car driving, you know the name Mario Andretti. He survived half a century of racing with barely a scratch, and he's barely slowed down. You gotta make that car that can destroy you, make it purr, make it do the things you want it to do. That's part of the That's appeal. The That's the appeal, of course it is. Ahead on Sunday morning, who do you think you are, Mario Andretti? <laughs> Martha Teichner serves up a taste of Irish cuisine that goes well beyond corned beef and cabbage. Lucy Kraft has sent us a very tidy postcard from Tokyo. Jim Gaffigan explains why winter sports leave him cold and more. Next. Long distance information. Give me Memphis, Tennessee. Chuck Berry. Help me find Pioneer. Trying to get in touch with me. She could not leave her number, but I know who placed the call. Cause my uncle took Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Chuck Berry was a music legend if ever there was one. And his passing at age 90 at his home near St. Louis is truly the end of an era. Our music man, Anthony Mason has an appreciation of Charles Edward Anderson Barry, a man whose music defined a genre that helped shape our time. Chuck Berry's indelible guitar licks helped form the bedrock of rock and roll. I roll over Beethoven, tell Tchaikovsky the news. If Beethoven hadn't rolled over, there would have been no room for any of us, Leonard Cohen said. All of us are footnotes to the words of Chuck Berry. I roll over Beethoven, they're rocking in two by two. St. Louis born, Berry blended blues riffs with a country twang and an onstage swagger embodied in his signature strut. Gone like a coo. The duck walk. You still do the duck walk? Oh, yeah. I can't get off without it. Yeah. In 1972, Barry, then 45, told Charles Osgood 
how the duck walk started. I never forget, I slipped and, uh, and fell, and, but I rolled over and put it in the act and got back up. And uh, ever since then, I got such a big ovation that uh, I kept doing it. Charles Edward Anderson Berry grew up in a segregated middle-class neighborhood. His father was a contractor, his mother a school principal. As a teenager, Berry did time in a reform school for armed robbery, the first of several brushes with the law. But in 1955, he got his big break in music when he traveled to Chess Records in Chicago to meet Leonard Chess. He told me to bring four numbers. As a matter of fact, I brought six. Maybelline was one. A number one R&B hit, Maybelline, would change his life. I was making $94 a week at uh, assembly plant. I had no idea. Suddenly, he was playing 40 weeks a year. At $50 a night. And the Lord had answered my blessings. You know. go, go. Go, Johnny, go, go. In the late 50s, he laid down one classic after another. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. Everybody drives cars. Everybody has to handle money. Everybody has uh, a love affair, inspirations, you know, and these are things I write about. And Rock's next generation all paid homage to him. The Beach Boys' 1963 hit, Surfin' USA, then everybody be surfing. Borrowed its melody from Barry's Sweet Little Sixteen. They're really rocking in Boston and Pittsburgh, PA. The Beatles covered his hit Roll Over Beethoven. Roll over Beethoven, gotta hit it again today. And a young Keith Richards wrote about him. April 1962, you sent this from home. Mm -hmm. In this letter to his aunt. I'm playing guitar. Chuck style. Chuck Berry. Yeah, that'll be Chuck Berry, yeah. He is the, the poet of rock and roll. As Richards told me this past November. You know, it's American rock and roll that turned us all on. Last night, Richards tweeted, one of my big lights has gone out. Everybody repeat after me. Chuck Berry's final album will be released in June. He played on into his 90th year, and his influence never aged. With this year's U.N. report on global happiness due out tomorrow, the country defending its title as happiest nation on earth is quite possibly not your first guess. Our cover story is reported by Faith Saley. When you picture the happiest place in the world, you might imagine white sand beaches and swaying palm trees. But it turns out the happiest place is a bit different. Welcome to Denmark, a small country of nearly six million people. No tropical beaches here, just rain for about 50% of the year. 
But despite the weather, this country still maintains a sunny disposition. So sunny, in fact, it's been named the happiest country in the world. What we find when we study happiness around the world is that the definition is quite similar. Jeffrey Sachs is an author of the United Nations World Happiness Report, which ranks the happiness of 156 countries and consistently places Denmark at or near the top of the list. People want to live well. They want to have money in their pocket and in the bank. They want to trust their government. They want to be healthy. Last year, America came in 13th place behind Israel, and just a few notches ahead of Mexico and Brazil. USA! USA! It's a ranking that might leave us scratching our heads. Americans love to chant, we're number one, but we aren't always. What does Denmark have that we don't? Free healthcare? Mm -hmm. Free education? Yes. What about maternity leave? Uh, I think it's 12 months, hey. which the parents can share five weeks of paid vacation per year. It's not bad. It's not bad. <laughs> Mike Viking is the CEO of the Happiness Institute located in Copenhagen. How can we be as happy as you guys? If I have to give one reason, it's the welfare state. It is focusing on reducing extreme unhappiness and investing in public goods that create quality of life for all. But this comes at a steep cost. Danes pay more income tax than any other nationality, as much as 60%. If you ask Danes, are you happily paying your tax, 8 out of 10 will say yes, to some degree I'm happily paying my tax. And I think that's because people are aware of the huge benefits they get in terms of quality of life. Jeffrey Sachs says there are other benefits too, like the fact that Denmark has one of the highest income equality and lowest poverty rates of any Western nation. Basically, social mobility is high because the obstacles are very, very low. You're really given the basics for a good, healthy, productive life. What do you say to someone who's like, yeah, but that's socialism and we're Americans? I say it's what they call social democracy. The idea is we're a market economy. We're privately owned. We better compete. So they have to be at the top of the game in technology, in research and development, in science, in quality of education. While Denmark excels in these areas, not everyone would call it a utopia. Danish people don't strike me as cheerful so much as just, like, content. Everything's fine. Yeah. You can say we are the happiest country in the world. I like to say we're the least unhappy. Danes still face the same struggles as everyone else. The country has the highest cancer rate in the world, in part due to its smoking and drinking habits. Large portions of the population also suffer from alcoholism and depression. I forgot about that. <laughs> Still, that hasn't kept Americans like Dina Honor from moving here. What surprised you the most about living in Denmark? Uh, how much we liked it. <laughs> Originally from Boston, she moved to Copenhagen in 2011 with her British husband Richard and their two sons. And uh, sometimes you've got to find just the right piece to make it work, right? They liked it so much, they decided to stay. Family life balance has been phenomenally better yeah. than it would be back in the U.S. Uh, the Danes, they leave work at 5 o'clock and they're home for dinner, you know, by 5.30. So Richard is home for dinner every single night. We 
both agree that it's probably the best decision that we've made as a family. The family has adopted two uniquely Danish philosophies that they say keep Danes smiling a bit more than the rest of us. Hygge. 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 is great. Hygge encourages people to enjoy life's simple pleasures. There's no real translation into English. It is a yeah. Danish phenomenon. It's a Danish thing. For a, quite a large part of the year, it gets quite gray here. It gets dark very early in the afternoon. And Hygge, this sense of bringing light and warmth and friendship in, into a house, it's trying to make things cozy and happy. The second uniquely Danish term is something called the law of Yanta. For Danes, that means living simply. Showing off wealth just isn't their style. It seems like in order for America to borrow from this Danish notion of happiness, Americans would have to give up things that are so prized, like exceptionalism and competitiveness. Yeah, I struggle with that myself. <laughs> uh, I think maybe we just need to focus a little bit more on helping others and, and taking others into consideration. And I don't think that means abandoning the idea of the individual. I think it just means finding a little bit more of a balance. It's a philosophy that's even mentioned on the government's website, which says money is not as important in the social life here. So maybe the elusive secret to happiness isn't that much of a secret after all. Philosophers have been telling us for millennia, don't just chase the money, they're right. America's gotten richer, a lot richer, over the last 50 years, but we've not gotten happier. It's worth pondering how we Americans can get our Hugo on. You want some water? We have learned to, to take each day as it comes a little bit more and to not always be thinking about what's next, what's next, what's next. I think career-wise, family-wise, school-wise. So maybe we're more Danish than we think. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, you know. Coming up, the war for the Falklands. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. March 19, 1982, 35 years ago today. Opening day for a war in the remote South Atlantic. For that was the day a small group of Argentine civilians planted their country's flag on South Georgia Island, which along with the Falkland Islands to the west had been British territory since 1833. On April 2nd, Argentina's military invaded the Falklands claiming them as Argentine territory to be known as the Malvinas. Ham radio operators helped get the word out. Britain responded with a naval armada, including two aircraft carriers and the ocean liner Queen Elizabeth II, refitted as a troop ship. At stake was a group of windswept islands with some 2,000 people and many, many thousands of sheep. British troops went ashore on one of the islands. That on April 25th, British forces retook South Georgia Island, prompting this famous declaration by Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Rejoice at that news and congratulate our forces and the Marines. 
British spirits rose again a few days later when a Royal Navy submarine sank the Argentine cruiser General Belgrano. Just days later, Argentina struck a counterblow by sinking the British destroyer Sheffield with an air-launched missile. British forces are tonight firmly established back on the Falkland Islands. On May 21st, the first British forces landed on the Falkland Islands and engaged in battle. As combat video made it back to London, our Martha Teichner reported. Here, an Argentine jet is blown up in midair by a British missile. On June 14th, the last Argentine forces surrendered. In all, Argentina lost more than 650 dead and Britain more than 250. And a third of a century later, the Falklands remain a British overseas territory, even as Argentina continues to press a claim it failed to win by combat. A three-month interlude of sound and fury signifying the status quo. Up next. This is Las Vegas. A life in lights. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Neon signs are fading from our landscape. Fortunately, our Lee Cowan has found us a place where we can bask in neon's afterglow. There are few cities as infinitely bright as Las Vegas. But there are also few cities as glaringly temporary. Despite its youth, Vegas always seems to be getting a facelift. Out of the dust always rises something new. But lost, perhaps, is what made us look in the first place. You really can't remember the buildings, but you remember the signs. Isn't that crazy? The signs. This is Las Vegas. Since the 1930s, they've lit up the desert like a giant welcome mat. The sands, the mint, the pioneer. Just a few of the stars of the city's golden age of neon gone dark. Well, what do you have here? This was the silver slipper. Back in 1993, Sunday morning's Jerry Bowen found a few famous survivors. The Hacienda sign from the 1950s. They were gathering dust in the back lot of the Young Electric Sign Company, the firm best known for giving Vegas its neon vibe. We just didn't have the heart to throw a lot of these signs away because the people that work for us love the signs. Jeff Young is the third generation of Youngs to lead this family business. His grandfather founded it back in 1920. To this day, Young still tries to save some signature pieces from being devoured by developers. So that light just came on, see that? <laughs> Look at that, see it's see? restoring it as we speak. <laughs> there we go. It's hard to find a sign in Las Vegas we haven't been involved with in some way. Young, however, is a businessman, not a museum curator. And storing signs that were often bigger than the buildings they advertised was becoming a real estate challenge. They were running out of space. And so the city got together and said, we need to save these signs. Let's think about a museum. In 2012, this dusty two-acre lot became just that. Rob McCoy is president and CEO of the Neon Museum. This is the Boneyard. 
Great bones. <laughs> Great it's... bones. It now has more than 200 artifacts, including the skull from the old Treasure Island casino. That one's so big, you can see it from space. The status symbol. Absolutely. If you had the coolest, biggest sign, you must have the coolest, best casino. Size matters. <laughs> up top, the Riviera sign lights up. Last year, the museum enjoyed record attendance. Around 100,000 people took one of the several daily tours. Each sign tells a story and a history. America in the 20th century, big, bold, brash. And in Las Vegas, we were big, bold, and brash on steroids, and we still are. Bold and brash, yes, but also elegant, like the graceful script for the Moulin Rouge. Built in 1955, it was Las Vegas's first interracial hotel casino. For a time, the only place in Vegas, Sammy Davis Jr. was allowed to sleep. Until Frank Sinatra said, you know what, if Sammy can't walk through the front doors of these hotels like I do and perform, then I'm not going to perform. And then there's the Stardust with its huge atomic age lettering. It was historic too. At 188 feet, it was one of the largest freestanding signs in the world at the time. Salvaging that was no easy task. It had to be cut up into multiple pieces and then transported here. It was a quarter of a million dollars just to deliver the sign to us. Just to get it here. Correct. Now, at night, these ghosts of a bygone era sparkle back to life, even those whose bulbs can flash no more. That was the greatest sign in Las Vegas still. And the biggest, right? Been the biggest. Frank DeFrancesco is a Las Vegas native. Nothing will ever top that sign. Ever. Ever. He now leads some of the nighttime tours. We're a young town, uh, a little over 100 years old, and this is a history we have. Let's, let's save it, let's talk about it, let's keep it. That's important to me. No vacancy. That's just neon gas. Resurrecting the past isn't always easy. Bending those fragile glass tubes is in many ways a dying art, but the results are almost always worth the work. Remember those signs rusting away in the Young Electric Sign Company's back lot back in the 90s? The Hacienda sign and that not-so-silver slipper next to it? Well, this is what they look like today, sparkling again on Las Vegas Boulevard. Signposts to the museum that helped fund their restoration for generations to come. As a population, and, and maybe as a culture, we don't appreciate history as much as we should. But maybe Las Vegas is beginning to start. Yesco's most famous sign, the one that welcomes everybody, is now listed on the National Register of Historic Places, giving it, and by extension other twinkling treasures, a renewed place in Las Vegas lore. I ran into a guy at the airport, had the tattoo, the Welcome to Las Vegas sign on his shoulder. I said, hey, I like your tattoo. That's forever. <laughs> and so is that sign, because it's not going anywhere. A forever welcome. Indeed. Still to come, the oh-so-fashionable Betsy Johnson. I never studied fashion design. You know, it was the one thing I really knew how to do. And later, racing legend Mario Andretti. When you heard on the radio your son is having problems, were you thinking, yes, yes?
It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. Fashion designer Betsy Johnson cut quite a figure on television's Dancing with the Stars. Then again, Betsy Johnson is a larger-than-life figure almost everywhere she goes, as our Serena Altschul discovered. Betsy, Betsy, to your right. A Betsy Johnson fashion show can seem a bit like a three-ring circus. With as much action behind the scenes as there is on the runway. Wow! Look how big it is! Can you believe it? There are DJs, celebrities like Blondie's Deborah Harry, hand drawn art by the designer herself. Betsy's beauty! Oh, and lots and lots of hugs. Every show concludes with Johnson's signature move, a cartwheel on the runway. It's no small feat for the 74-year-old designer who has hinted that this show may be her last. Really, your last what? show? Yes, I'm a little over the formula, up and down the runway. It's not my last something. And Betsy Johnson has done something in the fashion world for more than 50 years. Since the 1960s, the maniacally free-spirited New York designer's clothes have been the uniform for folks that don't want to look like everyone else. Back then, the Velvet Underground rocked her clothes. These days, she dresses the likes of reality TV star Kelly Osbourne. I wouldn't be able to be me without Betsy. In 2015, the Council of Fashion Designers of America recognized Johnson with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Today, I consider myself the luckiest girl on the face of the earth. But accolades have never meant much to Johnson. She just wanted to see her clothes worn. I never wanted to be on a pedestal. I wanted my clothes affordable, fabulous, and fun, gorgeous. I only knew about what I wanted, so I was just hoping there were more girls on earth that were kind of like me so that they would relate. Because the best thing is you look across the street and you see a girl in your dress with your bag and you go, oh my God. And you don't know her. Oh my God. Girls like Elizabeth DeLulo. She's like my inspiration with fashion and just life. And no matter how old you could get, you still could be youthful, you could still be fun. She was among the hundreds who turned out to meet the designer, promoting her children's line of clothing at Lord & Taylor at the King of Prussia Mall in Pennsylvania. As a child herself, Johnson didn't know she wanted to be a designer. She studied ballet and dance before graduating with honors from Syracuse University. I never studied fashion design, you know. It was the one thing I really knew how to do. She might not have studied fashion, but she was drawn to it. At 21, she won a contest to become guest editor for Mademoiselle magazine in New York City following the likes of Sylvia Plath and Candace Bergen. They picked 20 girls out of America, either 10 art-talented 
10 literary. I obviously got into the art side. So I won that, I got to New York, ba 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 ba. And after that, I just loved fashion. And she fell in love with New York City, where she was creating looks for models like Twiggy by day and hanging out with the in crowd at legendary nightclub Max's Kansas City at night. Within 10 years, she had her own label. Do you think of yourself as a businesswoman? Mm hmm. I learned right away which kids graduate from design school and they never learn. You're only as good as your last sale. Briefly married three times, she raised her daughter Lulu as a single, working mother. When I was little and I would have friends come over for a play date, I'd, before I'd open the door, I'd go, okay, don't be scared, but it's a little <laughs> different than your average house. And it was either a loft that we could roller skate in, or right. it was, you know, chartreuse green or the Betsy pink. Mm -hmm. So I was definitely like in, kind of embarrassed of my surroundings and environment. Lulu was there as her mother made a name for herself. And she was there when the unthinkable happened. One day I wake up, my left boob is gone. Literally. Uh. Right. It deflated. It deflated and leaked. Oh, no. Leaked into my body. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> One of the breast implants Johnson had gotten a decade earlier had malfunctioned. Then I went right away to this check and that check. And you know something's up when you have your mammogram and your sonogram and they don't let you go home. Her doctors detected breast cancer. Scared, Johnson told no one except Lulu. Just didn't want to deal with it every day. I, wanted, I was having my radiation 8 a.m. every morning at Cornell. Yeah. I, I didn't tell anyone yeah. Cornell. I didn't tell anyone but Lulu. And I made her... <laughs> right, sworn to because secrecy. I thought my business would be ruined. But breast cancer didn't ruin her business. It took the economic downturn of 2008 to do that. Devastated, Johnson declared bankruptcy. If I hadn't had Lulu, I, I wouldn't be alive. Her friend and legendary shoe designer Steve Madden stepped in to save the company, and Johnson stayed on as creative director. It's so fun to look back on something that you thought was so horrible and that thing of, it'll all work out in the end. If it isn't worked out, it ain't the end. After a lifetime in fashion, Johnson has broadened her horizons. They can beg and they Today, she's just as likely to be known for her dance moves on Dancing with the Stars as she is for her turns on the runway. I like watching her on Dancing with the Stars. Yeah, I love her so much. She's my idol. I, th I think she's a great person to look up to. Recently, this consummate New Yorker, these are really good, they're baby tangerines, left the Big Apple to live with her daughter and grandkids in California. Hey, that's a round off. I mean, but whatever coast she's on, she knows people across the country are wearing her creations. And for that, she counts her lucky stars. I've been lucky. I really, I think it takes killer hard work, talent, but for me, at everything, I think, oh, that was lucky. Luck, won the contest, that was luck. 
the cancer with the implant and the boob, that was luck. I only had Lulu, and that was luck. And then she has two kids, that was luck. And to me, it's just a lot of good luck and the talent and the work, but the luck for me has been the most important. Round, round, and split. Next. I'm already lost. I don't think I can do this. Meet the really neat Marie Kondo. And just in time for spring cleaning, Lucy Kraft has sent us tidying up tips from an expert in this postcard from Tokyo. Folding shirts, not everyone's idea of fun. I'm already lost. I don't think I can do this. <laughs> but in the hands of decluttering diva Marie Kondo, drudgery becomes almost an art. With fluid precision, she renders t-shirts into clothing origami. Her closet arranging lessons have become the Bible of home organizing to millions of reformed hoarders around the world. We've all tried to uh, fold our clothes upright so that they fit in the drawers, and it's kind of cool. A tiny, self-described wallflower who barely speaks English, Kondo has channeled her fixation with order into fame, fortune, and a home organizing empire. I read a book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo, and this book changed my life. Passionate fans have paid her the ultimate tribute. The methodical purging of excess junk is now known as condoing your stuff. What do you think of your name becoming a verb in English, to condo something, to clean something up? It feels strange, she said, but since my brain is full to the brim with thoughts of cleaning, I guess it's appropriate. With the single-mindedness of a scientist in search of a cure, Kondo has devoted most of her 32 years on Earth to waging war on disarray. To Kondo, the humble act of house cleaning is transformed into sacred ritual, performed in a pure white outfit and starting with prayer. She no longer makes house calls, leaving that to her apprentices, but she gave us a demonstration. Dump all your clothes in a heap, keep only what makes you happy, and say thanks to each possession before throwing it out. Kondo's mother, Michiko, told us her daughter's mania for order began when she was in grade school. When I came back from a vacation, two-thirds of my clothes were gone, she recalled. So when it came to family belongings, my husband told her to knock it off. While other students ran out for recess, Kondo stayed in the classroom to straighten the bookshelves. By her early 20s, she was able to quit working and declutter for clients full-time. As her talent for tidying became legendary, Kondo came up with her trademark, tokimeki, or spark joy. A customer was struggling with what to keep and what to get rid of, she told us, so I suddenly said, does owning this spark joy? From then on, cleaning went really fast. Weeding out what doesn't spark joy, she said, applies to just about anything. After cleaning her house, one of my clients changed jobs, she told us. Another one dumped her boyfriend. So you're not just a decluttering counselor, you're really a life coach. 
ていうふうに自分で動かれるので。I'm just helping people find what they really want, she said. Needless to say, in the publishing business, Kondo is cleaning up. Her books have been translated into 40 languages and have sold over 7 million copies. She's been named one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people. California native Laura Evans said Kondo's mantra is perfect for an era of downsizing. This is like a worldwide first world problem that we have so much stuff. And if, if someone can kind of get to the heart of it, that it's really not about the stuff, it's about our emotional attachment to the past or, you know, or whatever it is. In addition to Kondo's daughter, Satsuki, the decluttering diva's latest baby is a smartphone app to keep her fans motivated and a venture to train scores of cleanup consultants. The Kondoizing of America has just begun. All gone. Ahead. We want to make sure that you rebuild that restaurant so you can alone no more through your good work. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment and more. Play it at play.it. A restaurant owner who suffered a devastating loss has found to his great relief that he is alone no more. Steve Hartman has his story. Well, all gone. Last month, Bruno Serrato walked into the nightmare that used to be his dream. <laughs> This is what's left of the White House restaurant in Anaheim, California. There's the picture with my mom was on it. The picture of mom, pretty much everything he loved was in this restaurant. Bon appetito. Enjoy your dinner. This is what it looked like before the electrical fire. During our first visit in 2010, That story was about this Italian immigrant who catered to the rich and famous. Are you hungry? Yeah! Just so he could feed the down and out. Every day here at the local Boys and Girls Club, some of the poorest children in Anaheim had been eating from one of the most exclusive restaurants in town. At the time, Bruno was giving away more meals than he was selling, and he was going broke. Mortgage, I did a refinance the restaurant too. And you refinanced your home? I refinanced my house also, yeah. How can you keep feeding these kids? How can I stop? And that devotion All gone. is what made this so devastating. This fire will destroy everything I worked for 30 years. <laughs> yeah, just like, we need to find a kitchen somewhere because we need to do the pasta for the children. Unfortunately, that mission was clearly over. Or so he thought. Until he got home, turned on his computer, and learned what happens sometimes when really bad things happen to really good people. He got thousands of messages online and hundreds more in person. All of them offers to pitch in. Whatever I can do. Some kind of fundraisers. Any way we can help. And with that, The man who started serving all those kids on his own was alone no more. We want to make sure that you rebuild that restaurant so you can continue to serve all these children. More than a dozen caterers and competitors offered Bruno their kitchens for free. And as a result, he didn't miss a single day feeding his favorite customers. Hi, Bruno. People have also donated money to help rebuild the restaurant. Is everything good? Do you think you'll ever look back on this and say, I'm actually glad that happened? I really think of that. You know when you say you give a love and you get 100 times back? Mm -hmm. I disagree. 
you get one million time back. Now that's a lot of karma. Still to come, full speed ahead with Mario Andretti. And later... On Wednesday, I was invited to go cross-country skiing. Jim Gaffigan, good sport. Behold a replica of a 1966 Ford GT40, exactly the type of car Mario Andretti drove at Le Mans that year. More than half a century later, Mario Andretti is still driving and even giving our Moraka a lift for this Sunday profile. You would have thought I'd be nervous climbing into the back seat of a race car at Sonoma Raceway. But when the driver is a 77-year-old grandfather, why worry? Suddenly, I'm going 180 miles an hour. Who does Gramps think he is? Mario Andretti? I'm an adrenaline junkie, and without adrenaline, I'd die. Even though he's long retired from racing, every few weeks, Mario Andretti takes the wheel at racetracks around the country as part of the Mario Andretti racing experience. He and his fellow drivers give thrilling and, I can attest, somewhat terrifying rides to everyone from racing fans like Greg Leichner of San Jose. If you take a roller coaster and multiply it by about five, that might be close, but there's no rails. <laughs> to NBA superstar Stephen Curry. The fast? That was unbelievable. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Andretti is arguably the greatest race car driver of all time. During his half-century-long career, it seems there was no car he couldn't tame. I always say just like an animal trainer. If you can make a tiger or something that can destroy you, purr, you're a darn good animal trainer. And this is the same thing. You got to make that car that can destroy you, make it purr, make it do the things you want it to do. That's part of the appeal. That's the appeal. Of course it is. We're back at Daytona and the battle goes on. The leader is still Mario Andretti. What always made Andretti stand out from the pack was his versatility. He won on ovals, on road courses, and on dirt. You don't have them separated and categorized. That's exactly right, because that's the way my career went. I would go from the Grand Prix of Italy to the Hoosier 100 in Indianapolis to run at the fairgrounds on that dirt track race. No wonder the Associated Press named him Driver of the Century. You got a trophy from Hot Wheels. (laughs) Come on, who wouldn't want that? How do you like that? (laughs) That, to me, would be the pinnacle. (laughs) (laughs) Little kids would think so anyway. Mario Andretti's road began in Italy, where the end of World War II left his family in a refugee camp in Lucca. The family didn't own a car, but he and his twin brother Aldo parked cars in a local garage. We were just testing some standing starts, you know, a little bit of burnouts and so forth. So that's how I learned my standing starts in Formula One with some of these poor customers' cars. Whenever I valet the car today, I'm thinking, that, I wonder if they're doing the same thing I was doing. Note to self, <laughs> always self-park. They're making a fur fly right from the start. When he wasn't abusing other people's cars, Brandon's going to take him. he was at the movies watching racing like in this film starring Clark Gable and Barbara Stanwyck. All the soft spots aren't on the track. And then when Mario was 15, the Andrettis came to America. They settled in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. 
This is really your first house in America. First house in America, yes. Right after moving in, Mario and Aldo noticed a commotion nearby. Big lights about maybe a mile away. It was at the fairgrounds. And all of a sudden, a big explosion of engines. And, you know, Aldo and I looked at each other. We looked, followed the roar of the engines. And here was local half a mile dirt track. So this is where the noise came from. Came from, exactly. That made you and your brother run. Yes. And when you got here, you found? We found our future. The brothers cobbled together a race car, and Mario began building toward a family of his own. I met him when I was about 16. I had a holy family dance, the church dance. That was the start of a 56-year and counting marriage to Deanne Andretti. He was already all about motorsports. Oh, yes. I don't think he had anything else on his mind. <laughs> well, he must have had something else on his mind because he started dating. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> I said, well, if I'm ever given anything in my life, I said, I hope I have the opportunity to just uh, to become a race driver. And from there on, quite honestly, I never really had a plan B in my head. Mario's sons, Michael and Jeffrey, and nephew John followed him into racing. If you want to understand just how competitive Mario Andretti is, consider the Portland Grand Prix in 1986. Michael tries to pass his father. Look at him sneak to the inside and make a nice move on his father. Three laps from the end, I get screams from my engineer. Michael's starting to have some fuel problems. Let's see if that car has enough fuel to go the distance. The last lap came down to father and son. So I just stood up on the seat, and we're coming down for a drag race to the checker flag. Coming off the corner, he's out of fuel, and here comes the finish line. I beat him by two inches. The closest IndyCar finish in history. We were on podium, and he was not happy. Somebody told him, uh, Michael, Michael, it's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, Dad. When you heard on the radio, your son is having problems. Were you thinking, yes, yes. <laughs> well, don't tell him that. And you were thinking, that's my husband and that's my son. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I used to hate when they were together on the track because neither one would give an inch. So it's scary. <laughs> scary doesn't begin to define auto racing. I'm going to read you a list of names here. Red Regal, Judd Larson, mm. Dick Atkins, Don Branson, Billy Foster, Ronnie Peterson. Yeah. Well, that's the dark side of the sport, obviously. Uh, these are some of my closest friends that I lost uh, in the sport. This 1978 crash took the life of teammate Ronnie Peterson. When most of these men died, you already had kids. Did your wife say, you've got to stop doing this? No, I know what she was going through, obviously, because we were going through it together. But the end was such a rock for me. And she, in so many ways, I would say she suffered in silence. I guess that's really what I did, yes. Was there ever a moment where you thought, I got to tell him to stop this? No, because I knew what, what I was getting in for. You don't stop somebody if they have a real goal in life. Did you ever think, I might have to end up raising these kids alone. Oh, I often thought of that, yeah. But it's just the risk you take. Andretti competed in almost 900 races, missing only two because of injury. 
He walked away from this triple somersault at Indianapolis in 2003. You knew how competitive he was. Oh, yes, for sure. And still is? Mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> so you'd think that just maybe, in his eighth decade, Mario Andretti would be ready to put it in park. And indeed, you can sometimes find a more mellow Mario at his winery in California's Napa Valley, hoisting a glass of Sangiovese with the wine tourists. Oh, that's nice. That's great. When I'm here, when I bring the family here, it just really replenishes my spirit. There's something just soothing. Not just the fact that you enjoy, you know, the couple of glasses, but this is really a labor of love. But then Sunday comes. And Mario is back at the track. His grandson Marco is driving these days for the Andretti team led by Mario's son Michael. Look in the pit, and there's Grandpa. Does Marco want your advice? He takes it. I mean, I, I, uh, <laughs> I volunteer, you know, some advice. When he comes to see you race, does he come as your grandfather or as a racing legend that might have advice? He comes as my grandfather, you know, that, that really pulls for me once the best. It kills him as much as it kills me when it doesn't go right. So just have that support, it definitely feels good. I would never use the word retired to describe you. So let's just say at this stage in your career, is there something special about race day? Always is. Race day is always a new day. When I was younger, I said, someday when I become more mature, I'm going to lose those butterflies. And I never did from the first race to the last race. I had the same butterflies, and you know why? Because it meant something to me. Perhaps the best word to describe Mario Andretti? Driven. To you, does it feel a little bit like you're back in it suddenly when you get in the car? Always. It's my element. When they put me in a box, it's going to have to have wheels on it. <laughs> Jim Gaffigan's winter of discontent is next. Like death, taxes, and kale, it may never go away. Winter officially ends tomorrow. Not soon enough for our contributor, Jim Gaffigan. Winter's still here. Can you believe it? Like death, taxes, and kale, it may never go away. This week, the Northeast was hit with a nor'easter, which is like Easter, but instead of eggs and candy, you get snow and your screaming children kept home from school. It's harder to deal with a snowstorm in March. Snow and cold are interesting for about a week in December. Then winter turns into a dead poinsettia that sits around your house making you depressed. Oh, on Wednesday, I was invited to go cross-country skiing. I live in New York City. I, I can't even believe cross-country skiing is even a sport. Hey, you know how in downhill skiing, there's that awkward part of getting over to the lift? Well, what if we just did that? Cross-country skiing seems like a sport that someone came up with after they bought skis and discovered they lived nowhere near a mountain. Well, that doesn't matter. We don't need a mountain. We can just ski cross-country. Most winter sports seem like some last-ditch effort you'd employ to escape the abominable snowman. Look, the only way we're going to get out of here is if we cross-country ski. Really? Yeah. That or snowshoe. Well, what are we going to eat? Unfortunately, we're going to have to ice fish. 
I don't know, how are we going to get down that mountain? We're going to have to sled down on a toboggan or a loose thing. <laughs> Couldn't we just get a group of dogs to pull us out of here? People that enjoy winter generally seem mentally unstable. I just enjoy going outside when it's freezing and doing things nobody would want to do. If you were caught doing some of these winter activities, you'd be sent to an insane asylum. Look, you need help. I saw you walking through the woods with tennis rackets tied to your feet. And yesterday we saw you sweeping a frozen lake. Just get some help. There's nothing wrong with it. Winter is the worst. No wonder we drink so much on St. Patrick's Day. We deserve it. A Taste of Ireland is next. A lot of people still think we live on corned beef and cabbage here in Ireland. This service, table 12. Soda bread is a traditional taste of Ireland, one that graced many a table this past St. Patrick's Day. With Martha Teichner now, we'll sample a few of the non-traditional entrees that are transforming Irish menus. Here's a loaded question. If I say Irish cuisine, do you automatically think, you're kidding, right? Well, live and learn. I think a lot of people still think we live on corned beef and cabbage here in Ireland, but gradually the word is getting out. The word that Ireland is producing food so good that it's become a food destination whose evangelist-in-chief is, without question, Darina Allen, founder of the world-class Ballymaloo Cookery School in County Cork, along Ireland's southern coast. For foodie pilgrims from around the world, professional and amateur alike, this is the epicenter of Ireland's food revolution. People were surprised we were coming to Ireland for a um, cooking class and got a little ribbing for it, but it's been fantastic. The food is phenomenal. Joan and Jennifer Shumway, a mother and daughter from Connecticut, came because of what they'd read about Darina Allen. What excited you about coming here? Her farm is all organic. Most of the products that we're using, many are from the farm. And you can wander the farm all hours, um, day, day and night. We've developed a fondness for her probably 1,000-pound pig. <laughs> Past the pig and the cows on their way to milking. At dawn, farm manager Holly Welsh leads us along a rutted path to the greenhouses and vegetable gardens. Each morning, he picks fresh what will be cooked and eaten within hours. We get a list from the school every morning, sometimes if the students want to come down with us, and we show them how we grow it. Darina Allen may be the face of Ireland's food revolution, but it was actually her mother-in-law, Myrtle Allen, who started it. Just down the road from the Ballymaloo Cookery School, here in 1964, Myrtle opened a small hotel and restaurant in the family home. She cooked what she and her husband grew. She wrote out the menu by hand every day. 
the chefs, the proper chefs with the high hats and so on, thought, who the heck is this woman who writes the menu every day? And it was unheard of to do something like this. So within two years, she had the top ratings in the food guide in the British Isles. The Ballymaloo brand has become famous in Ireland. That's Myrtle in red. She turned 93 this past week. The Allens, all of them, are a food dynasty. I run the hotel. I help my parents to run the cookery school. I help out a few evenings in the restaurant. I'm the farmer. I help out in the hotel. I work in the house and in the shop. There are about 15 ancillary businesses, some very small, some a little larger. We're all connected under the Ballymaloo umbrella. As the Allens built their edible empire, chefs across Ireland saw opportunity. Among them, Paul Flynn. His service. After years at a top London restaurant, in 1997, he dared to go home and open this award-winning restaurant in the old tannery where his grandfather worked, in the seaside village of Dungarvan, not far up the coast from Ballymaloo House and School. Do you feel the success you've had, in part, was enabled by the Allen family? Without a doubt. I suppose what's happened around here has happened in the rest of the country as well. Because Ballymaloo's reach has been throughout the country. People's minds have opened. Opened to the idea that Irish food doesn't have to mean bad food. We're going to be making some little soda stones this morning. Okay. That's the whole point of the Ballymaloo Cookery School. Your scones are looking great at this stage and they're lovely and brown. Irish cuisine does indeed still exist. It just tends to be a lot better than it used to be. This is a rhubarb food. It's like the ripples of waves going out. As one person starts, it gives somebody else the confidence and so on. And now you can travel all over Ireland and get delicious, simple food wherever you go. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts.